The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves, and the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May, and then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your paces success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome back listeners, Sam Williams here again with another episode of the Pre-Paces podcast and this week I was joined by Dr. Tom Minton, neurology registrar in the Seven Deanery who helped talk us through Bell's Palsy as a curveball Paces presentation. As usual, Tom gives us all the best advice on differentiating Bell's from other causes of facial nerve palsy and generally gives us a comprehensive run through of how to manage it when you encounter it on call. And this week, our Buy Me A Coffee page features a triumphant triumvirate. So a huge thank you to Marcus Dawson, Edward Lewis, and Poppy Jenkinson for their generous donations. I'm so, so grateful to you all for supporting the show. You're all beautiful people. So consider this episode on Bell's Palsy dedicated exclusively to you. Welcome back to another episode of the Pre-Paces podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. And this week, we're navigating a Paces topic which would probably be a massive curveball, but still something we know has come up in previous years of Paces, and that is Bell's Palsy. And joining us is our fantastic resident neurology registrar. It's another brilliant returning guest. It's none other than Dr. Tom Minton. So Tom, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're right. Tom, thanks so much for joining us again to discuss what is probably another sort of paces curveball. It's something which, you know, we, we may find as medical regist turns up on the medical take in ED, sometimes ends up on the sort of the same day assessment unit as a GP referral. Hopefully you'll be able to give us some insight on the management and investigations and teasing out the elements of the history, which will help our candidates succeed if this comes up in paces. So, Without further ado, let's get into Bell's Palsy. So Tom, if we start off just with the absolute basics, for any listeners who haven't heard of Bell's Palsy, they've got no idea what this is. Can you just give us a a brief definition? What exactly is Bell's Palsy? Um, So ultimately, it's um, regarded as, for want of a better term, an idiopathic isolated um, lower motor neuron facial nerve palsy. So there's not it's not attributed to a specific cause 
and there's no underlying etiology for it. However, there are certain um, features of a Bell's palsy which you can identify clinically as being an isolated lower seventh nerve palsy. And so I guess the next thing to think about is how might Bell's be presented in paces? Yeah, um, it's a good question. It's a difficult one because one of the features of Bell's palsy is that in the the majority of patients, it it does recover, usually within three to four months. Um, um, However, there is a small percentage of patients where they will have long-standing facial weakness. Um, So as as an option um, in a PACES exam, I think it would probably most likely come up in in something like a station five, where someone has perhaps got a long-standing facial nerve palsy, and they present it as a, a Bell's palsy. Yeah, fantastic. And and we were just having a quick chat before we hit record about how the examiners could play this from their perspective in that, yes, it's a feature of Bell's that it typically recovers within four to six months, but actually they might have someone who has an isolated facial nerve palsy from another cause, which is more longstanding, and they can bring them back as almost an actor and then give uh, a history which is more in keeping with an acute facial nerve palsy which is the typical history of bells which we'll go into a bit later yeah exactly so tom as we're talking about an idiopathic facial nerve palsy i I thought it would be helpful to just run through a bit of basic physiology a bit of basic anatomy of the facial nerve itself and i wonder if you could just give us a rundown of the important aspects of the facial nerve because understanding that helps us understand how a palsy will affect our patient yeah absolutely so um so the, the, the seventh nerve or the facial nerve is actually uh, more than just a motor nerve, which is, which is, you know, the common features that you see in a Bell's palsy. Um, as well as it being a motor nerve, it's actually um, a sensory nerve, a special sensory nerve, and also a parasympathetic nerve as well. So the common thing that you see in a facial nerve palsy is the weakness or the motor function. The, the motor function of the facial nerve supplies uh, the facial muscles. Um, the motor nerve starts as a nucleus in the pons. It loops around the sixth nerve nucleus, branches off into stapedes, um, and then leaves via the um, uh, stylomastoid foramen to innervate the fa- muscles of the face. As well as that, you've got a special um, sensory component to the nerve, which uh, innervates the skin over the external uh, auditory meatus. Uh, and we also got a special sensory nerve where it supplies the taste to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. As well as that, it's a parasympathetic nerve and it has parasympathetic efferents which supply salivary glands and the lacrimal glands, giving it salivation and, and, and um, lacrimation. Yeah, brilliant. And so as we'll go on to talk about when we talk about how Bell's presents, all of those can potentially be affected in our, in our patient. And some of the brief research that I did on, on Bell's on UpToDate shows that the incidence is, is low. It's quite a rare condition and UpToDate quotes it at about 13 to 34 cases per 100,000 population. So it's not particularly common, which is another thing which might make it suitable for paces that this is an uncommon presentation. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a combination of being sort of the most common cause of a facial nerve palsy um, lower facial nerve palsy, but actually having no cause, which has led to having the term Bell's palsy. Um, but you're right in saying that actually, um, with an instance of around sort of 40 to 11 to 40 uh, per 100,000 per year, it's actually relatively rare, actually. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, 
again, the lead into a station, we uh, as as we've mentioned, it, it may be something as simple as either an emergency department referral or an ambulatory care referral or same day emergency care referral with something like, we'd be grateful for your opinion on this lady who has developed an acute facial weakness and something just as simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... As we talked about earlier um, before the um, the podcast, I think the most the most likely scenario that you'd get this in, in a patient's exam would be um, in a station five, where, as you say, you'd be given the referral as this patient is presented with um, facial weakness. We'd like you to take history, then examine the patient. And I think that's probably the most likely scenario you'd get. Yeah. And the other thing to say is that because we know that the format of the clinical consultations are going to be changing, so you'll you're going to have more time than the eight minutes that you would ordinarily or you'd have had in the previous format. So you've now got 15 minutes to take what would be a comprehensive history and perform the examination. So it's not going to be a rush through as quickly as you can in the eight minutes. The examiners are going to be expecting a comprehensive history and examination. So Tom, let's get into the main meat of it. We're talking about the presentation. So these patients, they've come in, they have a form of relatively acute facial weakness. What is the typical story of a patient who presents with a Bell's palsy? Well, um, I guess it could be considered as um, a Bell's palsy syndrome almost. So um, uh, although the most common presenting feature is that of a lower um, motor neuron facial nerve palsy. Actually, there are other clinical features that um, help you to point you towards a diagnosis of um, of Bell's palsy. The, the, the onset of, of facial weakness is, is typically very sudden. So it's, it's usually over hours to days. So it's usually within, you know, 48 to 72 hours that, or even less than that, the patient's will present um, and they'll present with um, facial weakness on uh, one side. Um, but also um, around 50% of patients will complain of um, post-auricular ear pain. So if, if someone presents with pain behind, behind the ear, followed by um, facial weakness, it almost immediately makes you think of, of, of Bell's palsy. There are other clinical features associated with it. So around 30% of patients will describe altered taste, and that's in keeping with the um, the the, uh, the innovation to the anterior two-thirds of the, uh, of the tongue. Um, hyperacusis, so um, a small percentage of patients um, will um, uh, will complain of um, hyperacusis, and that's due to the innovation of stapedes. Um, and again, because of the parasympathetic nerve supply to the lacrimal glands and the um, uh, and 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 the tongue, as we've mentioned, uh, patients may complain of of dry eyes. Sorry, Tom, just to just to jump in there. So, just for the listeners who may not know, hyperacusis is is the symptom of of a heightened sensitivity to sound, isn't it? So they're they're hypersensitive to to noise. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. And um, the key thing with uh, with Bell's palsy is that generally. Bell's palsy improves with time. So often with treatment or without treatment, the, the, the facial uh, weakness will improve usually within um, you know, six weeks to, to four months. Um, however, if it doesn't improve or if it's getting worse despite treatment, it should prompt you to think of other underlying diagnoses. Yeah, and I think one thing just to mention here for our listeners is that whilst we say the onset is sudden and 
we we understand that it's a lower motor neuron pattern we're going to be looking out for. It's not as sudden onset as you might expect in, for example, a stroke-like presentation where someone has a facial droop. Absolutely, yeah. So in someone who presents with, you know, acute, hyperacute onset facial weakness with forehead sparing, and we'll go on to that um, shortly, um, your immediate thought should be uh, you need to consider stroke and roll up stroke. Whereas the, the onset of, of Bell's palsy is typically more gradual over sort of hours um, to days. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess this is one thing. I, to be honest, Tom, I, looking at my research, I couldn't actually find any particular risk factors that there were for Bell's. Are there, is there any particular preponderance or is there any modifiable or non-modifiable risk factors for Bell's? No, I mean, I guess um, the fact that it's um, considered idiopathic um, means that, you know, it's hard to identify uh, risk factors, but there are small um, cohort studies um, uh, which suggest things like uh, male sex, um, increased age, uh, um, uh, hypertension, and um, and diabetes were associated with increased risk of, of Bell's palsy. But um, it's difficult to know why that is really. I'm not sure if that's just association rather than causation, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So the key the key parts of the history we'll go on to discuss when we talk about differential diagnoses as well, because eliciting the history we've described is going to be pretty much the opening gambit of the station. And it's going to be the listener's job to probe for alternative causes of a facial nerve palsy. So we'll come to that with the differential diagnoses. But for now, we're going to just touch on the examination findings. And as Tom correctly said, it's most likely to be in uh, one of the new clinical consultations where you're going to elicit the history, then do an examination. So what are the most critical exam findings that our candidates need to be uh, trying to elicit in their examination, Tom? Yeah, so um, I think the important thing to say is, and it's, it's fairly, fairly well known, um, that lower motor neuron seventh nerve palsies um, will involve um, the forehead. So you'll get um, weakness of the forehead muscles. Whereas um, patients who have an upper motor neuron nerve palsies, there is forehead sparing. And that's because... Um, the, uh, the muscles of the uh, forehead receive innovation from both hemispheres, whereas um, the, the, the muscles of the lower face just receive innovation from the ipsilateral facial nerve. So if you've got um, a lower motor neuron seventh, you just get weakness of the, um, the facial muscles of the lower half of the face. Typically, it's unilateral. If you've got a bilateral facial nerve palsy, again, makes you think of other diagnoses um, and things to look for examination you, you'll often get inability to close the eye um, you'll lose the um, nasolabial fold on the uh, on the side of the facial weakness uh, and you may get um, um, drooping of the mouth as well as well as that you can test for taste so um, you can ask patients to to taste certain things uh, and whether they've lost um, the, the taste in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. And then obviously you, you do a full cranial nerve examination on top of that, looking for any other cranial nerve involvement. But in a, in a, in a typical Bell's palsy, it's an isolated seventh nerve palsy. So in order to examine it, you would ask the patient so this is just the seventh nerve. You'd ask the patient to um, close their eyes as tight as they can, and you try and open the eyes against um, resistance. Elevate your eyebrows. Show me your teeth with a big smile. 
close your lips as tight as you can and then try and open the mouth against resistance. And as I said, you can formally test taste um, um, as well, um, or at least suggest it. Yeah, fantastic. So it's going to be a primarily a, a focused examination of the facial nerve is going to be your priority. But given that you're going to have additional time and, and that particular part of the cranial nerve examination, just a seventh nerve examination won't take particularly long, it's probably going to be beneficial to at least examine several more of the cranial nerves as well. So we'll we'll come to a couple of the atypical features which you would not expect to find either in the history but also in the examination as well because these would be reasons for you not to consider Bell's palsy. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned previously, um, bilateral facial weakness um, is atypical uh, and it, it should prompt you to think about other um, uh, diagnoses, particularly um, Lyme disease and uh, in patients um, who are HIV positive uh, or seroconverting to HIV, um, uh, they will often uh, present with a bilateral uh, lower facial weakness. As well as that, other additional cranial neuropathies, so things like um, an eighth nerve palsy on top of the seventh nerve palsy will make you think of a um, cerebellar pontine uh, angle uh, lesion. As well as that, other systemic features, so rash, particularly the bullseye rash that you see in, in patients with um, Lyme disease, lymphadenopathy, weight loss, fever, and um Always consider Lyme disease in, in, in patients who are in an endemic area or have recently had a tick bite. Atypical sort of tempo of, of onset. So as I said previously, if you've got really hyperacute sudden onset facial weakness, um, you should immediately consider um, a vascular cause of stroke. Again, if it's much, much slower, a more insidious onset over sort of weeks or months, that's very atypical for Bell's palsy, and it make you think of other um, uh, of other diagnoses such as um, uh, you know space occupying lesions, things like that. And as as we've said previously, no improvement within within four months, or if despite treatment um, the Bell's or the, the the facial weakness is getting uh, worse, it should prompt you to consider um, other diagnoses. Well, that's a really nice segue to take us into our differential diagnoses. And you've mentioned a couple there, Tom. But one one thing with uh, Bell's is the association with a, a herpes zoster infection. So I wonder if you could just expand a bit on that for us. What's the link between Bell's and, and a herpes infection? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, common, well, not, not commonly, but um, patients with herpes zoster uh, infection um, particularly of the uh, inner ear canal or um, of the um, uh, around the sort of tongue um, can actually present uh, with a, an acute um, lower motor neuron facial palsy and that's termed um, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. So if you've got a patient who has a uh, lower uh, motor neuron facial nerve palsy with pain in the ear and vesicles that are visible around um, the external auditory meatus or around the tongue, um, it should make you think of a condition called Ramsey Hunt. Brilliant. So Ramsey Hunt is is one uh, possibility. We've talked about stroke as well, which would obviously present with in in an upper motor neuron pattern. Again, the the onset we we would expect to be hyperacute rather than developing over hours and days. Lyme disease is a really interesting one, which you've which you've mentioned there, and you've mentioned a couple of the the hallmarks which might point you away from 
bells. And obviously a tick bite is the presenting symptom of Lyme or, or appreciate not everyone remembers when they've been bitten, but there's the characteristic erythema migrans. And I'd be amazed if a PACES examiner managed to get a patient with erythema migrans into the exam. That would be absolutely mad. <laughs> but yeah, I guess it would be things, the, the important things to ask about would be, have they been away on holiday and were interesting? It's always the new forests, isn't it? Yeah. I can't think of anywhere else particularly in the UK. Yeah, that's the, that's the um, holiday destination, isn't it? Everyone's off on holiday to the new forest. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and the other thing, I guess, is those patients often present with those constitutional symptoms you mentioned, which would be absent in bells. So the fatigue, sometimes they develop headache, arthralgias, and sometimes they can also develop other neuropathies in, in addition. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The other thing to mention, I guess, is testing for Lyme is, is a simple blood test, isn't it, really? It's a simple blood test, often with a complicated result, um, which is difficult to interpret and uh, is often non-specific. So um, when suggesting um, testing for Lyme disease, um, I would always have a strong suspicion that this patient will have an acute infection with Borrelia. How do you pronounce it? Borrelia? Borrelia. How do you pronounce it? Borrelia burgdorferi. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Borrelia burgdorferi. <laughs> That's the one. Borrelia burgdorferi. <laughs> um, a lot of people will have sero positive serology for Lyme disease uh, and it's often non-specific. I would only send testing for Lyme disease if you suspected that diagnosis. One in interesting other differential that I came across is sort of comes into the realm of ENT. Bell's, is, Bell's could be a potential complication of otitis media. I guess it passes um, through the sort of internal auditory meatus. Anything, any sort of infection within that region, I guess, could could result in, in um, damage to the facial nerve. So, uh, yeah, anything with sort of uh, external uh, otitis media or mastoiditis or, you know, uh, cholesteatoma could, could result in a, in a, in a facial nerve palsy, yeah. And then the other one, which I came across as well, and this is all from up to date, is Guillain-Barre. I don't mm. know how often you, you, yeah. you, find the, you find facial nerve palsy in association with uh, Guillain-Barre. Yeah, it's, it's quite common, actually. So a lot, a lot of the patients we see on the acute neurology board with Guillain-Barre will often have facial um, nerve palsies and facial weakness. And it is often bilateral. So if, if, if someone does present with acute onset bilateral facial nerve palsy in the context of the symptoms in the arms and legs, it, it immediately makes you think of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And as I said previously, again, bilateral lower motor neuron facial nerve palsies always consider HIV. Yeah, and into the same category as sort of HIV are some of the inflammatory conditions. So a couple that I came across as well as sarcoid can cause many weird and wonderful patterns of neuropathy and yeah. and Sjogren's syndrome was also mentioned in there as well. And, and these inflammatory conditions can cause yeah. many and varied neuropathies. And I guess one of those could be Bell's. Yeah, absolutely. And, and all of these sort of autoimmune uh, conditions will give you more of a subacute um, onset. Um, but you're absolutely right. So any sort of 
any atypical features whereby, um, as I said, uh, the facial weakness isn't improving um, after a certain period of time. You should always consider some of these um, inflammatory causes like sarcoidosis, like MS, for instance, if you've got a demyelinating lesion in the region of the seventh nerve nucleus, um, or indeed uh, Sjogren's syndrome, as you've said. As well as that, primary space occupying lesions, primary tumors such as uh, cerebellar pontine angle uh, tumors, or indeed metastatic tumors could in theory, um, give a, um, a facial nerve palsy. But again, that's a very um, insidious onset rather than the acute onset that you'd see in someone with Bell's palsy. So I guess the, the key part for our listeners really is eliciting the history of the facial weakness isn't going to be difficult. The main thing is going to be clarifying and confirming that it is a lower motor neuron unilateral isolated facial nerve palsy. Does it fit the temporal pattern, which we typically associate with Bell's? And are there any atypical features which might prompt us to consider other diagnoses? So I guess the the next thing to logically discuss is your examiner is going to ask you or or you're going to discuss with the patient what what investigations are going to come to confirm or or look for alternative diagnoses? The the vast majority of true Bell's palsy can be diagnosed on clinical grounds alone. So if you've got the typical features of the Bell's palsy syndrome with, you know, the the fairly acute onset, unilateral lower facial nerve palsy, um, with altered taste, with postericular ear pain, uh, with some patients having hyperacusis, then, then clinically you can make that diagnosis. You don't really um, investigate further, I think, if the symptoms go on longer than the six weeks to, to three to four months where you'd, go, you'd expect the Bell's palsy to improve. And in that case, um, the first thing you'd look for um, is an MRI scan of the brain. Uh, and particularly with um, with uh, gadolinium, looking for any areas of inflammation in the uh, seventh nerve nucleus in the brainstem of the pons. As well as that, you can see some uh, facial nerve enhancement in a large proportion of these patients. What you'll often find in clinical practice is that radiologists will only really accept a a request for an MRI scan if there are atypical features. In terms of lab testing, I think it is reasonable to send off routine bloods such as, you know, FBC, inflammatory markers like CRP, plasma viscosity. If you are suspecting the patient has Lyme disease, so if they've had a tick bite or if they've got the typical um, rash, then it is I think it is important to send Lyme disease serology in that scenario. And in cases where you're suspecting a patient may have an underlying uh, inflammatory disorder causing their facial nerve palsy, then, then CSF um, uh, is certainly useful. I guess the important thing just to clarify is that this is all to exclude other causes and that actually normal result normal results support your diagnosis so it's not a positive test it's to rule out other other causes exactly exactly so if you've got if you've got the, the characteristic clinical picture of bell's palsy um then you don't necessarily need to do any investigations at that point unless any of the atypical features are present fantastic moving on from there there's, uh, there's not really much else in the way of investigations so moving on to the the treatment of bell's and it's one of those conditions where for some reason it does, it always sticks in my head. It's just one of those things where similar to almost a GCA, it's high dose steroids, isn't it? Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and 
I think the the nice guidelines is either um, 50 milligrams of oral prednisolone for 10 days or 60 milligrams for five days followed by a five day taper. Um, and it, it, you know, there's, there's no evidence either for, you know, one way or the other really. Um, but that is what the nice guidance suggests. If you've got someone with a, with a Bell's palsy, early uh, treatment with uh, high dose oral steroids has an improved clinical outcome. So steroids is an absolute must. And the other thing to notice what I found is ideal. It should be started within three days, but do you, would you, in your clinical practice, Tom, would you tend to treat them even if they presented after? that three-day uh, window? Um, yeah, I guess, I think I probably would, unless it was, you know, way, way down the line. Um, if it's within a week or two, I think it's perfectly reasonable um, to give a course of steroids. But if you're sort of two or three months down the line, then I think you've probably missed the boat at that point. And then another thing which you often hear uh, associated, we obviously spoke about the herpes herpes virus association, is the use of antivirals such as uh, acyclovir. So, Tom, what's the? Is there any benefit to using antivirals in in the uh, acute phase of Bell's treatment? Uh, so, the evidence base uh, on use of antivirals uh, in uh, Bell's palsy um, is mixed, uh, and there's no general uh, consensus on whether you should uh, prescribe antivirals if there are features of herpes zoster, such as you know, as we say, Ramsey Hunt um, syndrome with vesicles in uh, the external auditory meatus or elsewhere and then certainly yeah antiviral therapy uh, is is recommended in that case but um, generally if it's uh, if it's mild you know straightforward bell's palsy then the effect of antivirals in that scenario is you know it's it's difficult to prove it is suggested that in severe uh, acute cases treatment with valcyclovir or even acyclovir is indicated but again, the evidence for it is actually quite mixed. Uh, and I think a Cochrane review, as usual, came up with a non-committal answer. <laughs> Brilliant. And then I guess one of the things that's important uh, in, in patients with Bell's is sort of the supportive treatment. So um, yeah. you, you mentioned it early on in the examination or in the present typical presentation is that eye uh, protecting their eyes is, is important because failure to close their eyes puts them at risk of um, exposure keratitis um, so there are there there are some supportive steps we can take aren't there absolutely so it's really important these patients um, with with fish and nerve palsy to, to look after their eyes both because they've got reduced may have reduced tears because of the um, loss of parasympathetic input to the to the um, lacrimal glands and um, as well as that because of the facial weakness you may get uh, an inability to close that eye so patients um, high risk of developing keratitis and corneal erosions and things like that so in those patients it's really key to make sure that particularly at night their eye is taped down and you can also prescribe artificial tears and things like that just to keep the eye moist yeah fantastic and uh, Tom let's say we've got many of our fantastic listeners let's say Let's say one of our listeners listens to this podcast. The next day, they see a patient with bells on the medical take. Because of our fantastic advice, they manage it brilliantly. In terms of follow-up, do you tend to see these patients in a neurology clinic afterwards? Not typically, um, unless, as we said, there's incomplete recovery or the the facial weakness is getting worse. So in, in those cases whereby 
you suspect there may be something atypical underlying it or an alternative diagnosis at that point it might be worthwhile referring to a neurology outpatient clinic which is often the case we see from um, from gp practice yeah so not a not a routine first time referral but if they have returned either to the medical take or maybe to same day emergency uh, assessment then something to consider yeah and i think we've sort of touched on prognosis of bells through the course of the conversation but overall the prognosis is is quite good isn't it yeah absolutely um so you'd expect a full recovery in over sort of 70 to 80 percent of patients within um four to six months in some patients uh you get incomplete recovery and, and may have long-standing facial uh, nerve weakness and in, in other patients often due to um Aberrant innovation, you'll often see patients with um, hemifacial spasm or synkinesis, where, for instance, if a patient smiles, they'll often have um, eye closure at the same time. But as I said, it's a good recovery, particularly if you um, if you treat early with uh, with high dose steroids. One one last thing to touch on, Tom, is that there there had been some studies looking at physiotherapy for bells and they weren't large studies i think they were just uh you know essentially case series studies but physiotherapy wasn't recommended as sort of a rehabilitative approach to bells as far as i could find no um it's not as far not not as far as i'm aware i mean there are some uh reviews recommend um sort of massage of the facial muscle and sort of trying to get that facial those facial muscles moving again through sort of self exercise but um as far as i'm aware there are no uh, physiotherapy programs for um bell's palsy fantastic well i think that pretty much wraps up our rapid review on this curveball paces station of bell's palsy that only leads us to pay a huge debt of thanks to dr tom minson our fantastic brilliant and we have it has to be said tom you've done this after a day on call so myself and all of the listeners are really grateful for you giving up uh, a bit of your evening to uh, educate us on bell's palsy so thank you that's all right no problem at all enjoyed it fantastic well thanks tom and listeners that's the end of another show please don't forget to like follow and subscribe to the show or leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts we always love to hear from you so give us a shout on our twitter which is at prepaces podcast or you can email us via the website if you really want to go above and beyond you can always support the show it's buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast. <laughs>